Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. This is at the level where we're at now, not only on a country, but on a worldwide scale, this is happening. And now, you know, we're going to allow kids to do that, but we're going to make sure they don't watch Bugs Bunny. And we're going to make sure that they don't read Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head and uh, whoever else they, they deem. Amazon now book burning, so to speak, books from uh, society. There's a great book out there. It's called When Harry Turned In the Sally. And it's a book of helping people out of their gender dysphoria, out of transgenderism and whatnot. And now that book is banned. Any help that these folks that are trapped in that lifestyle could get is now removed from them by Amazon. And uh, at that same time, I can tell you where this is all leading to. It's not just simply going after books. The prize is going after the ultimate book. They're going to go after the Bible. That's where it's going. And, and they're going to say the Bible's racist, xenophobic, it promotes genocide, it promotes a tra- uh, homophobic, transphobic, whatever you want to call it, it's uh, racist, whatever. They're going to come up with all these terms to label it a hate speech book. And I already know that's what they're saying. This, this is what they're going to push. And it might, it might come quicker than what you thought. It might come quicker. Uh, eventually it might be a banned book or they'll have to have an edited version or whatever like they're currently doing now. So this is the fight and struggle that we're in and um, what you're going to learn today in, in the text and what we need to apply is how to be obedient in this kind of atmosphere and this world that we're in because I can tell you this, the temptation to not be obedient will come to you from these people. They will put so much pressure on you as to tempt you away from the Lord, to get you to compromise, it'll be unrelenting, man, and you're going to have to stand strong in your obedience to the Lord. So this is why I think what we're studying about Israel and the manna is apropos. And you see what these people are doing, and you're thinking, why are they doing that? I mean, that's sick. It's because they don't like God. They, in fact, hate God. And when you hate God, you do everything in your power to disobey him. And that's what they're doing. So let's start off with the title of today's sermon, which is going to segue into that. And it's God's provision implies God's rules, not ours. So as God is the creator, the sustainer of life, he has the right to make the rules and tell us how things go. But he doesn't do it arbitrarily. He does that in a certain way that builds a relationship with us and then gives us the rules. And unfortunately, people who don't want to have a relationship with him are going to buck the system. And you're going to see that with Israel going on with them and how they buck the system and they don't they just don't comply. You'll see them cheat. You'll see them do all kinds of things to get out of just doing what they're told to do. And we'll go through all that and apply it because we need to understand what's going on with society. Why would Jerry Nadler get in front of Congress and say, God's will has no place in our Congress. Man, you're dealing with a flat-out atheist, man. You're dealing with a flat-out God-hater, rejecter. I call them Babylonians. What's happened? What's going on with these people? They're in such rebellion. 
Well, let's look at, at the origins of it. Let's look at how, why it happens and then investigate it and how we can apply it to our lives. So Exodus 16, we'll start in verse 9, and we'll do a little backtracking just to remember a few things. But in verse 9, it says this, Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now, the funny thing is about this is what it's going to establish is interesting. I want you to see the, the, what, what he's trying to do. It's not going to be a situation where God hammers them. Although he could, he's not going to hammer them. He's heard the complaints. Oh, God's not going to provide. We, we're, we're going to die in the desert. They've heard that. But despite hearing the complaints, he's going to provide. But what he has established with Israel, now I want you to watch this is he's establishing, before I give you a rule or rules, I'm going to establish relationship with you. I'm going to show you that I'm for you, not against you. I'm going to show you that I want the best for you and that I've designed you a certain way, and this way will be best. Because the principle is this. You'll see this in Scripture. Grace comes first and then truth. So relationship before rules. So you can learn this. I've heard Josh Mandel talk about this when he was talking about parenting a long time ago. And he said this, folks, when you're raising your kids, if all you do is give them rules without relationship, you're going to get rebellion. That's what you're leading your kid into. Rules without relationship cause rebellion. And he's right. He's totally right. If you have a good relationship with your kids then when the rules come down, they should want to comply because they have a good relationship with you. And that's what God's trying to do and show us. And so in the first part of this, you're going to see a lot of relational things that God's doing for them. So the first relational thing is, I'm not going to hammer you. I'm actually going to give you grace. And so he's he's saying that. Verse 10. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the congregation of the children of Israel, that that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. So salvation always comes from from the east, so they're looking to the east, and the glory cloud appears. Now, the glory cloud is the presence of Yahweh, right? And he's showing that, look, I'm coming to you to meet your needs, but I'm coming to you in my presence. I'm going to be present with you, and I haven't left you, I haven't abandoned you. I'm going to provide for you. You're not going to starve to death. And again, what does Shekinah mean? We're talking about the Shekinah glory. Shekinah in Hebrew means one who dwells with. So when you see the glory cloud, and even in the tabernacle, the the glory cloud would encircle the top of the tabernacle, as you can see in this next picture, that would be a sign to Israel that God is with them. His presence is there with them. He hasn't abandoned them. Again, more relational terms, right? Showing that I'm with you. I'm the one who dwells. I'm the initiator who wants to dwell with you. I want you to think about relationally what that means. God is saying to Israel, I want to dwell with you. And he's telling us, I want to dwell with you. Now, when Messiah came, he dwelt on earth. It says he tabernacled with us. But now Messiah tabernacles where in this? Inside of us, he tabernacles. And so eventually then we go to, be, uh, to, uh, to the New Jerusalem and we tabernacle with him. And it's a, it's a picture of God telling you this, I want to be with you. Now, I want you to think on that simple terms, how important that is for people to hear that. Because 
in the counseling world, most of the people I talk to have been rejected by other people. That's the norm, is to be rejected by parents, to be rejected by siblings, to be rejected by uh, adult children, whatever it might be. They, people go through a life of rejection, 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 rejection. But here comes Yahweh, here comes Jesus saying, I don't reject you, I actually want to be with you. Now, how does that make you feel when the God of the universe says, I want to dwell with you? See how he's establishing relationship? He's saying the same thing to us. I want to dwell with you. I want to, to be with you. See, that causes us to want to obey because he's for us. So anyway, let's continue on. It says this in verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Now, the idea of the meat will come just to give them some food in their bellies until morning, until the manna comes. But what you're seeing here is notice that the, the evening comes and then the morning. That's actually a Hebrew day. It harkens back to creation. And in the creation, there is evening and morning, day one. Then evening and morning, day two. That's a Hebraic understanding of the day. So what God is, again, pointing to is he's pointing to creation. That I am not only going to live with you, I want to be with you, but I am your creator, and I made you, and I know how you're formed and fashioned. Therefore... I know what your physical body needs. And, and he's going to provide whatever, whatever they need physically for sustainability in the desert with this manna. This manna, if you think about it, this bread from heaven, will be the exact macro and micronutrients and vitamins that they will need. They won't need anything else. And it will be the right amount no more, no less, that will sustain their living bodies for 40 years in the desert. That's pretty incredible. But only the Creator could do that. Only the Creator. And He's trying to say, look, I'm, going, I'm about to do a miracle to provide for you that will sustain your body through this all. So you can trust me, basically. I know what I'm doing, He's saying. I'm your Creator. Then He says this, And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now, what you see with this is that it's the term Yahweh. I am Yahweh. So I'm creator, I want to dwell with you, and I'm Yahweh, which means I'm the personal God. That's my personal name, and I'm the covenantal God. I'm the God who makes promises to you, and I will fulfill them. I made a promise to your, your ancestor Abraham, and I'm not going to let you die in the desert. Notice all the relational terms that are coming out. That's amazing. But it does set the standard for how obedience is to be done, uh, dealt with. We obey because of who God is. We obey because of his attributes. We obey because of who he, uh, who he says he is, what he will do for us, and what he has done for us. That's the basis of obedience. Okay? So keep that in mind as we go through this. Now, He's going to start giving the manna harvesting laws. Verse 13, he goes, So it was that quail came up at the evening and covered the camp. So this is a one-time event. Later on, the quail will come again um, as a judgment to them because eventually they get tired of the manna. I'll explain that in just a bit. But 
the quail comes and it's going to feed them. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is still going on today. Still going on in the region. So this, these quail, these flocks of quail will actually fly into this region. They've been doing it for 3,500 years, as long as we know Moses was there. And the quail still goes there every year. At this time, we're about, what, two weeks away from Passover, right? So this is when, you know, they're, they're, this is a month later. So you're talking about like the end of April-ish when they're out there at this time in the desert. And so this is the time when the quail come, cross the Red Sea, and they settle in Saudi Arabia. Now, here's the interesting thing. When the quail get there, they are so tired from the flight over the Red Sea that they literally just land on the ground, and you can go and pick them up. They're so tired. They won't run. They won't fly. And then you can have a quail barbecue that night. And that's what... That's what Israel did. They had a barbecue of quail that night, and it was a one-time thing. And But what, what happened is, it wasn't like Israel had to go hunting for quail and throwing nets. They didn't have any nets. They didn't have anything. All they had was their hands. So God gives them quail, but the quail are so tired, they just go over there and just pick them up, pick them up, pick them up, pick them up, pick them up. Simple. That's how God provides. And by the way, they still do that today. The quail will land there after the flight, and they're exhausted, and they just sit there like sitting ducks. They don't move anywhere. It's crazy. It's like a perpetual witness with the quail in the area. It's pretty cool, huh? Now, let's get to the manna harvesting laws. And in the morning, the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. Now, notice that this layer hits the camp. It's early morning before sunrise. It's right in the morning. And you get, they got to gather it now before the sun gets out because you'll see it'll, the sun will burn it off. But I want you to notice how it comes. The dew starts happening when? At night. Okay? So the dew starts happening at night, and the manna comes out of the dew. The manna actually comes out of the water. I want you to think about that. And so when the water burns off, therein lies the manna that comes out of it. Okay. It's a parallel. It's a typology. It's pointing to something. We know already that manna is a typology for the Messiah. It points to the Messiah, right? We already know that. So how does this point to the Messiah? What time of day was the Messiah born? When did the shepherds go and see when Messiah was born, at night. The dew starts appearing at night, and then the manna comes out of that. So the parallel is Messiah is born at night. There's a reason for that. It's a parallel with the manna. The manna starts appearing right before the sun comes up. It's at night time still. So Jesus comes at the beginning of a new day. He comes When you come at night, that means you're coming at the new part of the day. The daytime is actually the last part of the day. So manna comes the same way Messiah comes. It's prefiguring how Messiah would come. Okay. That being the case, it's flaky like frost in that sense. It's very delicate, very, very important, but it's very delicate. So it has to be hand-picked. It can't be... It can't be uh, muscled through with a shovel or anything like that. Let's keep going. Watch what it says. 
So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Now, it's kind of like people on the English way of understanding this, people say, well, it's kind of like the candy bar, whatchamacallit. We don't know what to call it, so we're just going to call it, we don't know what it is. And it, it, yeah, that's true on the surface, but it's not true on the deeper level of understanding what the word manna means. And that's what I want to explore right now. Because it says, for they do not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Okay. So let's, let's explore the Hebrew word manna to get a full picture of what this, this, what the Hebrews are trying to say. Manna is basically two Hebrew letters. It's M, R-M, and N, M-N. But in Hebrew, it's called the Mem and the Nun. The Mem and the Nun. There's no vowels in Hebrew, okay? It's just consonants. And so it's an M and an N, okay? So when they're saying, what is it? Or, what, you know, what, what, what they're in effect saying is this, that Whatever this bread from heaven that Moses has said, we know it comes from a far place. We know it's not indigenous to this earth. It has to come from heaven. And because it's coming from heaven, it's coming from God, it must be important, is what they're saying. So this portion comes from a long way, and therefore it must be important. That's what they're trying to say. And then, to add more to this, you, you've got to know what the Hebrew letters mean. So let me show you this. What you see on the screen is the original Hebrew on the left side with the pictograms, and then you have the Hebrew of today with the symbols. The Hebrew today is still reminiscent of a pictorial graph. It's an alphanumeric system. It has, and, and the Hebrew letters, believe it or not, when you study Hebrew, the Hebrew letters point to the original symbols. So as you can see on the left-hand side, the, you know, the alif is a symbol of a cow head or a steer's head. You can see that with the Hebrew symbol. Bet, which where we get like Bethlehem, is house. That's why the Hebrew word looks like a house. And then with gamil, the letter is shaped. You can see it, it's referring to a camel. And then if you, you know, you, I don't know, you move on to, uh, let me use one, the Lamed on the other side, you, you can see how the, the staff looks like. And now let's move to the Mim and the Nun. The Mem in Hebrew, the original way you wrote Mem is, is water. You would actually make three wavy signs, I guess you want to say. You'd make three wavy signs to make the word Mem. It then, over years, ends up with the symbol of Mem. You can see that on the right side. And you're seeing two forms of it. You're seeing the, the, the first form and then the final form. The final form is, is the, the ends are, are collapsed. Uh, they come together. The other one is, is open. Okay, what does that mean? What the Hebrew is trying to say, notice the blue body of water. The Hebrew letter is actually a picture of like a lake or an ocean that... The, the black part would be the encirclement, and the inside of it would be the water. You see the picture there? It's a picture of a lake. It's a picture of an ocean or the Sea of Galilee or something like that. But it's an encircled lake or body of water. And what the word mem means, the, sorry, I keep saying word, but it's letter. The, word, the letter mem means means it means a body of water or something that is producing life. Something that's producing life like a body of water. 
So anytime you see the, the word mem, it means that something is producing an abundant amount of life. Like if you go to an ocean or a lake, it has an abundant life coming from it. With the fish, the fowl, whatever. There's an abundant life coming from it. But notice it's water. It's water. Okay? So let me bridge it over. The Bible, the Scriptures are sometimes given the metaphor of water, right? Water. And then you have the constant washing of the Word of God, uh, the renewing of our mind and, and this constant washing. So when you see the letter mem, you're seeing the Word of God pictured as water. And the Word of God produces life, does it not? Right? Okay. How did the manna arrive? What form did it come in? In the dew. What's dew? Water. That goes to the next letter. The noon. The noon is represented on the the right-hand side of an upright letter. The term is an upright. And the upright on the final, it has a final form in the Hebrew, and it'll go down below the line. But it's a picture of someone standing upright. And what that means is they're morally upright. They're righteous. They're holy. And they stand upright, if that makes sense. And then the noon, um, the way you would actually write it out is either you would, you would make a, a symbol of a seed with a sprout coming out. That was the original way you wrote. So notice that the letter looks like a sprout coming out of a seed, right? Or you could picture it with fish. There's another way of writing it. It was a picture of a school of fish. Now, what that means is this. That which is upright comes down below and produces life from within, from under. So whether you're going under the water and what's under there, fish, produces life, right? You go The upright one comes down and goes under the water, produces life. Or the seed in the Hebrew mind is that which comes down, you plant in the ground, and then out of the seed, it multiplies and comes out. Now, let's connect it. We connected the mem to the Word of God, but who is this upright one that comes down and goes below, is buried in the ground, and then out pops the life, out of the ground. You see it? It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. The upright one is the Messiah. He was the sinless one. And he comes down from heaven like manna, coming down from heaven, and actually buries himself as the seed because he dies on the cross, they bury him, they put him in the heart of the earth, and then three days later out comes the the new life, the resurrection, and that new life produces an abundant life. So notice that both the water and the upright one produce life, and they mul- it multiplies life. So when you get down to it, when the Hebrews said, Mn, Mem, Nun, Manun, or Matnun, or however they pronounced it, they, in effect, were pronouncing the Messiah. 
whether they knew that or not. But it's in the Hebrew. And they were saying, one day, this, this, like this manna, the Messiah is coming, and he's going to come down out of heaven, bury himself, and then out of that burial will come life. It's right there in the Hebrew. Now, any Jew could pick this up. Anyone studying uh, uh, the alphanumeric system can pick up on this. And it would, it would point directly to Messiah. Isn't that amazing? Only God could do something like that. Even in the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Wow. Blows me away. Let's continue on. Verse 16. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's needs. One omer for each person. According to the number of persons, let every man take of those who are in his tent. So, again, the point is, you, you are to go out, gather a certain amount. You are limited and restricted on how much you can take. You have, you have to take enough for you and your family, but that's it. You can't take beyond this. And notice what it, you'll see the phrase, according to one's need, according to one's need. Now, that's important. According to God, what one individual needed was two quarts. That's it. He said they will only need two quarts of manna per person. No more, no less. That's what I want to give them in this nutrient packet that they're going to get from heaven. Now, why is that important? Because it has to do with teaching the Israelites about needs versus wants. Watch this. Continue on, verse 17. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. Watch this miracle, how God regulates this. This is pretty cool. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. So God's totally watching this on every individual. If someone goes out and takes too much to get some type of worldly advantage to store it or something like that, it is reduced by God himself. There's another miracle of reduction you take too much, I will reduce it to two quarts. Now, that's interesting. What's that trying to do? It's trying to teach them, you only need to take what you need. I don't want you getting into wants. I'll explain that in just a bit. Look, another miracle happens. And he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's needs. Now, if you went out there and you didn't gather enough... And it wasn't, you know, obviously you failed to meet the two courts, maybe because you were tired, maybe because you're, you're feeble, maybe you're, you're handicapped, I don't know, but God made it up. He made up the rest to where you, even though you couldn't gather enough, he made it up and he created a miracle where he added. Notice that the, the miracle of subtraction has to do with those who won't stay at their, meet, their, uh, their need level. And the other one of addition has to do with those who can't meet their needs. He actually meets the rest for them. It's beautiful. But what is this about these needs? It is what our culture is going through right now. America is seen as a consumer to the Chinese, to the globalists, to all these corporations, to big tech, to Facebook, to Google, to Amazon. All they see of us is we're just a bunch of consumers. 
And what they have successfully done through marketing techniques that messes with the psychological minds of people is create those wants into needs. That's what's happening here in America. And unfortunately, the younger generation is completely caught into this. And they, they don't even know how to get out of it. They don't even know they're in it. My generation's caught up in it. They're trying to outdo their parents, for goodness sake. At 25, they're trying to outdo their parents. Your parents are 67, you know, 50 years old. How are you going to catch up to them? I don't care. I'm just going to live that way. Why is that? Because the culture has taught them to go beyond their needs to satisfying their wants. And boy, howdy, when you get into that area, you are going to do yourself a disservice. You are going to destroy yourself. That's what God's trying to prevent. It is very difficult. We have missionaries that pray for us in other third world countries saying, we pray for you. I said, what are you praying for? And they go, we're praying that you, go, you, you don't become materialistic. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, I'm not saying you can't have nice things. Not saying that at all. Not saying you, ha- you can't have a savings account. Not saying you can't have insurance. You've got to do those things. The Bible actually advocates having a savings account and all that stuff. Put it away for a rainy day, so to speak. But what it doesn't advocate is that you, in your thinking, allow yourself to cross a line to where wants become needs. And that will be, when you get into that category, you won't be able to tell the difference. People just automatically, well, we need this. We need that. We need this. We need that. And all of a sudden, you're just consuming, consuming, consuming. This is what God is trying to prevent He's trying to stop that. I'm just going to meet your needs. Continue on. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. So there's no leftovers. You can't store it away. It'll spoil. Verse 20. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. It's like, oh, here we go. Here it starts. So Moses tell them, look, this is what you got to do. And, and, and like five minutes later, they're disobeying. It's like you're talking to your teenager. You just told them to do something. Don't take any more than what you need. And five minutes later, you turn around and they're they're loading up. Unbelievable. Hey, I just told you. But some of them left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. Of course, I told you this would happen. And sure enough, the great thing about this situation, it's happening immediately. Sometimes you have to wait for the consequences for years later. But this is happening immediately. And Moses was angry with them. Of course he is, and he has every right to be, just like a parent would be. Hey, I just told you to do this, and you didn't listen, and you did your own thing. You can see where the anger is coming from, right? Moses said, hey, look, we're dealing with Yahweh. Do you understand that, Israel? There's no messing around with him, and you're messing around. Now, here's the interesting stat. You ready for this? No matter what you tell people, You say, don't do this, it'll hurt you. 60% of the people you tell that to will do it, statistically speaking. They will just try it out because they don't believe you. And so they will just go out and do it there on their own. Hey, don't do that. You can end up dead. They'll do it. I didn't end up dead. Well, if you did, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation because you would have ended up dead. But you were lucky, apparently, or blessed that you didn't die from whatever you did. And so you're starting to realize what's going on in the obedience. What's happening here? Let's drill down a little bit. What's happening 
is Israel is only seeing obedience as self-directed rather than directed towards Yahweh. Now, what do I mean by that? Having obedience towards Yahweh and saying, I'm going to obey God because he wants to tabernacle with me. He's my creator. He's my savior. He's my provider. Look at all that God has done for me. I'm out of Egypt now. Uh, I got through the Red Sea. Man, this is great. I'm going to do everything he tells me to do because he's for me. That's God-directed obedience. I want to obey him because he's so good to me. And I love him back. It's a relational obedience, okay? Israel is over here saying, no, it's obedience directed towards me. I will only obey you if it benefits me. You see the difference? Now, they're going to obey God in certain areas, but they'll always fudge here and there. They won't do the full thing. They'll go over. What's happening is because they want the manna, but they don't want to obey it. A harvest loss, the manna harvest loss. Because it's kind of the mentality of people, well, I'll obey God I'll, and I'll do what I need to do to win back my wife. You mean my, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, my wife and I are estranged and so I'll do what I need to do. I'll come to church. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. And hopefully my obedience will win back my wife. <clears throat> Doesn't work that way. That's self-directed obedience. Because guess what happens when they get their spouse back? The obedience stops. They stop coming to church. They stop reading their Bible because they got the goal. The goal was self-directed. Or I'll be obedient to the Lord if he helps me with my finances. Or I'll be obedient to the Lord if my in-laws will like me. Good luck with that one. In-laws are like pit bulls. They'll, they'll, they'll turn on you like a sheep-killing dog. Well, and so, but you, you get the point. They, they're doing things to get something in return. And that's called using God. Do you think for one second that God is going to let you use him? You're out of your mind. If you're going to try to play that game with God, he doesn't play that game. You're not going to use God in order to get things in your life. That's not how it works. But Israel is going to do it. They're going to try it. And they will, that's why they're failing. Notice the pattern. God, relationship, then rules. Israel's not responding to the relationship. Therefore, if you don't respond to the relationship, following the rules is not high on your list. It's Israel's problem because they don't want relationship. That's the problem. So when you find somebody in your life that says they're a Christian and they have disobedience problems, what they're telling you is that they, it's, it's not that they can't do the X, Y, and Zs, it's they have a relational problem with God. That's the problem. That's why they're not obeying. Let's continue on. Verse 21. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. So, yes, there's a, a time period. You can only do it at this time period. This is part of the harvesting laws. You've got to do it in the morning. Why do you have to do it in the morning? Because that's the priority. I want your day starting with me. I want every day starting with me. I don't want you to put me on the back burner. I want you to gather the manna in the morning when you get up. We're going to start the day together. Verse 22, And so it was on the sixth day, 
that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses, yeah, it's happening, Moses. Yeah, of course it is. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. I told you guys it would work out. I told you. He's, he's a promise-filling God. We don't have to go out and harvest anything on the Sabbath. Bake what you will bake today, he says. Boil what you will boil. Lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded. And it did not sting, nor were there any worms in it. Again, this is storing up on the sixth day for the Sabbath, okay? Then he goes, then Moses said, eat that day, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days shall you gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath, there will be none. Simple. Pretty basic, right? No harvesting on the seventh day. Clear as crystal. Got it. Clean your room. Clear as crystal. Clean your room. Simple, right? Watch. Now, it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. Thank you. He just told you, you're not going to find food the next day. You are to gather it on the sixth day, and then there's nothing there on the seventh. But what did they do? I'm going to go check, because I don't know. I don't know if it's not out there or not. Hey, do you trust him? He just told you it's not going to be out there. So they go outside, they look for it. It's not out there. Yeah, he told you that. He told you that. Do you see a teenager here? Do you see an adolescent here dealing with this stuff? I just told you. I just told you. What's the deal? What's the deal here? Is it, as some people will say, well, there's a lack of information. Or Israel's just a newbie. They don't know uh, things. Or the structure around them is not conducive for them to obey. Or maybe it's because they're a victim coming out of Egypt and they remember how bad it was and they they simply are so frightened they don't trust anybody. Is that it? Is, is, Is all these other things you can point to, maybe they contribute a little bit, I don't know, but is that the main thing? No. You know what the main thing for Israel is? This is why they keep doing it. You've seen in the text, two disobedience just right off the bat. Boom, boom, boom. They're not listening. It's this. And it's what the Bible says is all of our problem. You disobey the Lord because you want to in the story. Now, you can have all these other mitigating factors in your life. All these other things. I'm immature. I don't know my Bible. I, I have, I'm a victim. Uh, this, that, yada, yada, yada. It, but at the end of the day, when you trespass over that line, God's saying, you chose to do that. You didn't have to, but you chose to do that. And that's what Israel's not getting. That they are simply disobeying because they want to. And that's what he's trying to nail them on. I don't want that kind of attitude that you're just going to do what you want to do. It doesn't work that way. And so what God's going to do is put on all kinds of consequences for them through it all. Continue on and we'll wrap it up. See, for the Lord has given you a Sabbath. He's given you a gift. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Take advantage of the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So let me reiterate this if you didn't hear me the first time. Clean your room. So the people rested on the seventh day. Good. Now it's going to 
go into the uh, more explanation about the manna. And the house of Israel called its name manna. So we talked about that, but let's go on to the what it looks like. And it was like white coriander seed. It's white. It's a pale white coriander seed. It's like a white, a pale looking thing. Sometimes it's white gray. But white always in the Bible symbolizes purity. It symbolizes holiness. So when it you see the color of the manna, it points to the Messiah being pure and holy. And it tastes of it, the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Now you think, what's the big deal about that? Because we get honey off the shelf anytime we want, and you're kind of used to honey. It's no big deal to you. In the ancient world, honey was primo, man. Primo. To get honey was extremely rare. Because no one harvested honey. There wasn't like beekeepers like we have here. You had to find honey in the wilderness, in the wild, and then you had to risk your life by being stung to death to try to get the honey out of the honeycomb. And so to get honey was rare. And the taste of it was the primo taste of the Middle East. It was the the par excellence to get that flavor. And God's saying, I'm such a good God. I'm going to provide you something that meets all your nutritional needs. And I didn't have to give it a flavor. I didn't have to give it a flavor. But I did the flavor for you. Because I'm going to give you the taste of something so rare on the earth. It's going to be sweet every time you eat it. And every time you eat it, you will remember the sweetness of my relationship with you. Now, here's the deal. Later on, this is what you're going to find out. Some of the Israelites will not like the taste of it. They, they finally get tired of it. How could you get tired of the taste? It's simple. It's a spiritual idea. They finally get tired of the taste because they'll have no appetite for heavenly things. And so when you lose your appetite for heavenly things, this right here, my friends, is not sweet anymore. When people say they have a hard time reading their Bible or getting into it, getting into study or whatever it might be, or even doing any of the spiritual disciplines, the question you have to ask is, how is my taste? Because if this tasted like honey to your soul, you'd be there every day. If this fed your nutritional needs, you'd be there every day. You couldn't keep it down. But if you turn off from the spiritual things and you turn on to the world, then this is not tasting good to you. So then you will look to other things to satisfy your spiritual needs. Because this, remember he says, it will meet your needs. It will fill you up. It, 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 it has its effect that when you eat it, you'll be satisfied. And the same is true. So once someone goes on the search for alternatives or counterfeits, they will eat other meals served up by Satan or the world, and they will be dissatisfied. They will always be hungry. So they always have to go looking for more meals here and there, and they never are satisfied. And and, and if they get a taste of of the Bible or someone giving them the Scriptures, it turns their stomach. They can't eat it anymore because they have turned from their appetite spiritually. It's an important lesson, but this is what happens to Israel. Last thing, i got to end on this. This is interesting. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it, but to, to keep it for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt, and Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it. 
and lay it up before the Lord to keep, uh, keep, to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. So, this is interesting. God commands Moses to take a, a sample of this manna, put it in an omer, and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. So if you were to look in the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to see Moses' tablets, you're going to see Aaron's rod that budded, and then you're going to see the manna that's inside the Ark. Now I want you to think about this. Why is the manna put inside the Ark? Why is the manna not outside in the holy place, but it's in the Holy of Holies? It's actually inside of the throne of God. Because what does manna point to? Jesus. This is Jesus' throne. So as Jesus sits on the throne of the Ark of the Testimony, what is the Ark? The Ark is the throne of God, the, the, the man-made, man-made uh, earthly throne of God. But I want you to look as God, as Jesus would sit on the throne, metaphorically speaking, because the Shekinah would be above it, as Jesus looks down, what does he see? Now you have the top of the lid, and the top of the lid has the blood on top of it. It's the mercy seat, and the mercy seat has blood on the top of it. You remove the mercy seat, and within the throne of God is the broken commandments. Then you have the rod of Aaron that budded, which shows resurrection, and then you have the manna, which is the provision of God. You see it? It's a picture of the Messiah. It's a picture as Jesus looks down or God looks down on the ark, he sees that the price has been paid by the blood of the Messiah, which was provided, that came from heaven. So the manna being provided is the idea of God providing a way of salvation. And, And that way of salvation was seen through death and life with a resurrection, Aaron's rod, and it satisfied the broken commandments in the ark. See how it's a beautiful picture inside the ark of Messiah and what he did for us? Now, here's the interesting thing. The temple of of Israel will one day be built again. Maybe in our lifetimes, we, we might see the third temple of Israel. Interesting thing about it, they're ready to put it up, and a lot of their Arab neighbors actually are okay with it now. It's weird how things are progressing in the Middle East. Weird, but very prophetic. It's possible that one day you and I could see a third temple start being erected on the Temple Mount. It's possible. It may not happen until the tribulation, maybe, I don't know, but it's possible. Now, here's the funny thing about this. Funny meaning strange. The Jews that are ready to put up the temple, they say they have the Ark of the Covenant. That's underground, it's in the Temple Mount, and if you ever look at the Temple Mount, there's caves all under the Temple Mount. There's Jeremiah's Grotto, there's uh, tunnels uh, that were dug to hide things when the Babylonians... So the Jews, the idea is that the Jews hid it before Nebuchadnezzar came in in 596 B.C. and hid the Ark and some of the remaining uh, temple furniture in one of the grottos that's underneath the, uh, the temple. They say that if they build that temple, they're pulling out the Ark of the Covenant, and that's what God has told them to do is pull the Ark of the Covenant out at that time. If they do have it, rest assured, in the Ark of the Covenant is the manna. The manna is supernaturally uh, kept from spoiling, and if that's the case, it's been kept for spoiling for 3,500 years. And if it does make the Ark of the Covenant ever make its, it makes its appearance again, 
the ark testifies of the Messiah. It points to Jesus. Now, I know the Jews are, in some ways, because of their unbelief, are blinded, but one day they will see that that's a picture of Jesus right there. That's a picture of Jesus. Application before we go. Let me show you this astronaut. This is Charles Duke. He walked the moon, and he was interviewed on the moon, uh, when he was on the moon, and they asked him, hey, Charles, when you're on the moon, did uh, you get a chance to play around and do anything you wanted to, you know, throw moon rocks or whatever, and, you know, skip around and, and feel how weightlessness feels and all that stuff on the moon? And uh, he said, no, absolutely not. He goes, because we had to follow everything that Houston told us to do and they said, why? Why did you have to fall? He goes, because if we didn't, we would die. If we didn't follow the instructions from Houston, we couldn't get back. We would get stuck there. And already, I can tell you this, we miscalculated when we landed and we came in too heavy. And they go, what do you mean you came in too heavy? And they said, we had a minute left of fuel, and we were supposed to be at zero, and we had a minute left. They said, you got it down to 60 seconds worth of fuel? And they go, yeah, we weren't supposed to have it in our tanks when we landed, but we, so we landed heavy. And the interviewer said, that's, that's unbelievable. He goes, yes, because when you're in space and you're walking on the moon, everything has to be exact. You cannot make a mistake or you're going to die. And in that illustration, they saw Houston not in giving orders and telling them what to do once they're on the moon. They saw Houston as a lifeline that they've got to do everything Houston did. And they, had, they, they didn't want to disobey because it meant their life. Do you see that and then you apply it to God, how God's wanting us to view obedience with him? He is saying, look, I'm your lifeline. If you obey me, I will show you the way back home because I want to dwell with you. I want to live with you, and I want you to be with me for all eternity. So please do everything I tell you to do. So when I frame it that way, all of a sudden, obedience becomes easy because he's for me. He wants me to be with him. So why would I not? See what it does? It makes obedience easy. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.